Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name is Mike Fenton-Stevens. Not that you need to be bothered about that. But the thing you may need to know is that in this podcast, I ask various guests to reveal the five things from any time in their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish or would like to see again, but they also have to pick one thing that they would like to remove from their past. Something they want to bury and never think of again. My guest in this episode could be described as a comic performer, or as a musical director, or most likely as a composer. But you'll probably know him as Alan Partridge's band leader, Glenn Ponder. His actual name is Steve Brown, and he's so much more than a band leader. For example, here's a selection of the things he's done. Steve was the musical director of Spitting Image, the Rory Bremner Show, and the musical brain behind Songs for Dead Ringers. He was the musical director for Steve Coogan on various shows, including two UK tours. He did the same thing for Harry Hill on his tours, and in the Harry Hill movie, and various Harry Hill TV shows. He's written the theme tunes for Anton Deck, Not Going Out, The Brian Connolly Show, New Tricks, and the long-running ITV show My Parents Are Aliens, among others. As a record producer, Steve worked on the triple platinum album Seasons of My Soul by Rumour and Laura M. Vula's debut album. More of that in the podcast. He composed the score and co-wrote the book and lyrics of the West End musical Spend, 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 which starred Barbara Dixon. And again, with Harry Hill, he co-wrote I I Can't Sing, the X Factor musical, which premiered at the London Palladium in 2013. The two of them are about to produce Tony, exclamation mark, the musical, The Life of Tony Blair. 
which I was lucky enough to take part in as a showcase just before we did this recording. Steve also wrote the music for the musical adaptation of the film It's a Wonderful Life, which again I was lucky enough to perform in and actually regard as one of the highlights of my career. That's not a bad selection, is it? So let's see if Steve chooses any of those things to put in his time capsule, either as something he treasures or something he'd rather forget. Or are there other things that he regards as being more precious? Let's find out. I think we ought to talk about this musical we've just done before we even start, because it was just so much fun. Yeah, it really was. You know, I almost had that sort of come down afterwards, that sort of slightly mm. anticlimactic kind of thing, because we'd spent so long on it. I kind of think with something like that, it's the, uh, the writing for me is the easy bit. Mm. <laughs> it's all the stuff that goes around it, trying to organise something, because we had nobody else at the back of us. It was Harry and I, and the amount of time that we spend talking about it and uh, thinking about what it is. You know, we just got this house, and we were looking at plans today with the, with the builders, what they're going to do. And I thought, all the time is spent on getting the permission from the building <laughs> plan, and you know, having stuff signed off and, and then talk about and getting the materials and all that kind of And the guy said, and oh, no, when you put that wall up, no time. <laughs> you know, it's like the duck paddling thing, you know, absolutely yeah. still on top in this movement down below that you'd never see. And I mean, like, when you actually get down to the writing, for me, it's like a, it's like a relief because I sort of know what I'm doing then and I enjoy it. I definitely described it to people exactly as that. People were saying, oh, that was brilliant. You all had a wonderful time. And I said, no, we were paddling like mad under the water. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my agent, Vivian Claw, Mm. she saw the recording of it. And untypically, she was on the phone the next day, absolutely waxing lyrical saying, that's fantastic. And she said, and what about the cast? She said, my God, what a fantastic cast. I said, yeah, really good. She said, who cast it? I said, we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me, by rigging mates up and saying, can you do yeah. it for me? <laughs> yes. Well, I suppose if you were going to do a great big West End musical and you wanted to basically see everybody and you want to see lots of people you didn't know, because yeah. somebody might turn up and, and you just think, well, that's it, that's the person. But generally, if you're doing a thing like that, you're going to cast people that you know you can rely on who will put the work in and make sure that they're ready. Absolutely. I mean, I'm the same about the musicians that I use. It's... Um it's always people that I've known a worryingly long time. <laughs> and the good thing is we don't notice each other getting older and greyer. Same old crowd. Yeah. So, oh, there he is. Yeah. It's absolutely that. I don't have to explain to anybody. They know what I kind of want from them. There might be something that doesn't quite add up, but they know why they're there. I know who they are when I call them up. I mean, it was a very strange thing to do the musical and then finish because I think, as I explained to you, I sort of in my mind thought that I'd got to an age where I probably couldn't do that sort of stuff anymore, Mm. where actually I wouldn't really be able to hold my own against proper good young singers. And I was really thrilled to be able to sort of hold my own against them. No, you did. It became very, very clear in my mind as I left the longevity of what you and I have done together Mm. was slightly overwhelming. I remember your cassette tape arriving at the Paris studio and Phil Pope playing it to us and saying, listen to this, this bloke sent me these tapes of him doing musical parodies and they're bloody brilliant. When's that, 84? Jesus, it was about that. Mm. So that's a long time. So in fact, I slightly feel that when we talk now about things from your life, 
I may well have been around for them, which is quite exciting. Well, I'd turned pro in 82, and uh, I remember I'd heard the heebie-jeebies on the radio of the van that I was driving around London at the time and thinking, oh, God, this is this is clever. Mm. And uh, I don't even think I had any ambitions for comedy at that time. It all happened, as things often do, by accident. Yes, weird. Yeah. Well, let's explore it. Let's see what five things you've chosen to put into a time capsule from your life. Mm. There are four things that you cherish and one thing that you want to get rid of. And that's it. Okay, I'll kick off... Um... I've got a screensaver here, and you can't see it, unfortunately, but I'll describe <laughs> it to you. It's uh, Alfie, my son. Mm. He's holding his latest child, Tennessee, Tennessee Brown, who's just a, a year, I think, any day now. Mm. And um, he's got Tennessee in one hand, and he's punching the air with the other. And behind them, there's a picture of me on television going like that because I've just been on Pointless Celebrities. <laughs> and we just won. <laughs> and um, when I got the call from an agent, whoever it was, said uh, Pointless Celebrities have been in touch, I thought, Christ, I need that like I need a hole in the head. <laughs> yeah. And that noise you can hear in the background is the sound of a barrel being scraped. <laughs> I am in no way a celebrity, and neither do I have any desire to be a celebrity. Then my wife, Deborah, came in and she was trying to organise some things for uh, ovarian cancer. And uh, I said, I don't want to do this. I said, but I, if you want me to, and I'll go on there and that can be my charity... I'll do it. She said, yes, I'd like you to do it. And uh, mm. they would be uh, delighted. So I did. They were. Have you done it, Mike? No, no. No, I'm not, I'm not a celebrity. Rather like you. I've never claimed to be. No. I mean, in many ways, I have more claim to it than a lot of people who, do, who live their lives being celebrities. Mm, yeah, you do. But I don't think of myself that way at all. No, 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 no. There's something horrible about it, isn't there? <laughs> Anything? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I'm in the car going there to do it, and it's Barbara Dixon, who's, uh, you know, an old friend of mine, mm -hmm. and she's great. She's done it a few, she'd done it a couple of times beforehand. I was nervous because I thought, I don't want to make a fool of myself. I've got to win this thing. I mean, you can't make yourself win because if the questions don't play, you know, if the cards don't come to you kind of thing. No. And I thought, I've just got to kind of keep my cool. And, you know, sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. I was lucky that day I did, and... Uh, we won and got the money, won the jackpot, but I believe they've made it easier than it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Is that because no celebrities ever won the money? It used to be very rare that anybody had won it. Do you watch Pointless? No, but I was aware of it. I'd caught it a few times and, you know, anything with questions in. I mean, I do enjoy that and I did used to like a pub quiz and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And I am shamingly competitive <laughs> most men are aren't they i don't know well i think so probably but also you've got a very broad knowledge so that helps you know you've done a lot of things you've been involved in a lot of things yeah so that helps i do remember watching that program and right at the beginning i said to my wife steve's gonna win this <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it was very pleasing and i, I went home and i was king for a day well, enough for your son and grandson to stand there celebrating your victory. No, but the great thing is that I've got the trophy. Yeah. Because they give you the trophy. So I've, I've got that at home. <laughs> it's a good conversation piece. But the number of people who got in touch with me 
people I hadn't heard of in ages. Oh my God, you do that and all that. <laughs> You're a celebrity. Yes, didn't know. Had no idea. <laughs> How big is the trophy? Because they never show next to anybody. No. I always think it's a bit like Spinal Tap. It could be huge. You put it in your garden or fit in your pocket. It's quite nice, but it's quite heavy. I always thought it could, if you had an intruder, it would be a very good blunt instrument. So about 10 inches high? About that. But it's not bad. It doesn't look as tacky as you might expect it looks it's a nice thing just the other day i was watching a sequence of people giving answers that they clearly thought were good answers and then they turned out to be really embarrassing on those sort of quiz shows so that's the fear isn't it yeah somebody the other day on uh, an afternoon quiz show he said to him uh, homer described nectar as being the drink of the gods what was their food and this person said well i know he likes donuts so when i'm gonna go for donuts <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, yeah. you feel for this man because that could so easily be me. Jupiter, he likes donuts, doesn't he? Hercules <laughs> went, you know, normally went with a chocolate eclair, and yeah. uh, Venus was very fond of a jammy dodger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those ancient Greeks, they love them. <laughs> so what should we do? Should we put the trophy in there to remind you, or should we put that picture? Yeah, it's the trophy. It's a lovely picture of Alfie and Ten, as they call him, mm. Tennessee. Great name, Tennessee. Uh, it's a fabulous name, yeah. Originally, they were going to call him Bam. After the Flintstones child? I don't know. I don't know where the hell it came from, but we were calling... Tennessee, bam, for quite a while. And mm. we were very disappointed when they said, no, we changed our mind, he's Tennessee. But, yeah, yeah we're kind of used to that now. It's a, it's a great name, and he's a real character. He's great. And I've recently found a, a long-lost, uh, I mean, obscurely known, I've had John Lennon aficionados who've never heard of this song. He wrote a song called Tennessee. No, I don't know it. It's never been released. Tennessee, old Tennessee. Sounds like a Harry Nilsson song. It's 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 a lovely. It's one of the best things post Beatles that I've heard by John Lennon, but never been properly recorded or or released. All right. Okay, Steve, we're going to put your pointless trophy into the time capsule to represent your first item. That's brilliant. So let's move on to item number two. Now, I'm a creature of habit. And um, what I like on a Friday evening is, um, we've moved now, but we used to have a room at the front that my wife referred to as the snug. (laughs) And it was snug. And I've got to that point where I have a chair that I don't want any... I actually don't want anybody else to sit in the pathetic. (laughs) So I go in there and somebody, if a guest has already gone in there, I sort of have to give them a look. <laughs> oh, sorry, I need to be there because I got the record player next to me. Okay. So if you could just fuck off. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the chair is there. I've got the record player. Probably got Frank Sinatra or Nina Simone or something playing on the vinyl. And we have a dry martini. Mm. And I learnt how to make a dry martini. Did a little bit of experimenting, not too much. Basically, what you need is a lot of ice. And a lot of gin. <laughs> Once you've got those two elements, you go all the way to the top of the cocktail course. I know. I think people do put too much vermouth in. Oh, yeah. No, that's a disaster. 
Christ, don't mm. do that, whatever you do. And don't, not an olive, not with the brine. You can put, um, you know, a drained olive, but why? My wife bought me a cocktail shaker and the lovely glasses that really ring, you know, that nice sort of thin but solid glass, you know. Mm. Don't be fooled by this little thin strip of lemon either. You need a big, thick chunk of lemon peel. Enough zest, because you squeeze it on there. If you look and just see that zest going, it's like a film. It, you see <laughs> the film across the gin, and it's beautiful, and it's freezing cold. So loads of ice, throw the vermouth onto the ice, give it a bit of a shake. Actually, you should stir, not shake. Does it make a difference? Yeah, because if you shake, you're loosening the ice off. Ah. So you're getting more of a watery drink. You can stir gently, but you can't shake gently, can you? No. Particularly at this age. (laughs) (laughs) And then you throw the vermouth out. Just pour it away. Wow. I'm almost tempted to stop the recording now (laughs) and go downstairs (laughs) and get some ice out of the freezer. It's such a beautiful thing and it tastes fantastic. And that's just an ideal Friday. But Mm. there was an old guy over the road. He used to come, he he used to love the way I made this drink. And he said, is there any chance of uh, you you having another one? I don't know where you were. I said, yeah, so I go and make him another one. Two of them. Oh, boy, you know, that's Mm. the Dorothy Parker. I like a dry martini, two at the most. (laughs) Three, I'm under the table. Four, I'm under the host. (laughs) Very good. Do you know, I've never heard the idea of just stirring the ice with the vermouth in it Mm. and then pouring the vermouth away. Vermouth-infused ice. It's almost homeopathic. So the taste is there, but right in the background. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. And also you don't want to kind of go, mm, that's that's gone. Mm. When a proper, you know, when a proper madman measure. Yeah. I heard somebody talking about that recently, saying, you know, is that, is that an American measure or is that an English measure? Mm-hmm. It's so, so begrudging, isn't it, when you have a spirit in a pub? They measure it out. Just pour it, can you? And you do you do ask for a double and you want ice put in it just to make it look like there's something in the glass, don't you? <laughs> yes. I know. Although the, the one thing that I, I quite like, and actually I, I almost wish that we still did it in pubs, is wine served in the French way. If you go to a French bar and you order just red wine, they will give you quite a small glass of red wine. I mean, filled right to Mm. the top, the meniscus holding the wine in the glass. Mm. It's an amazing skill that all French waiters have. But I (laughs) like that little glass. Mm. Now, if you order three large glasses of wine in a bar in England, you might as well order a bottle because that's what it is. Yeah. So would you recommend an expensive gin? No, 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 no. Don't mess around with that. Get beef eaters. Beef eaters or Gordon. Yeah. I mean, you'll have, you know, Tanqueray, which isn't, you know, it's not the last word or anything, or Number 3 or Hendrix. Uh, the studio here is in Chiswick, and the Sipsmith Distillery is just down the road in Chiswick. We nearly bought a house around the corner from it. Not for that reason, I might say. <laughs> but the best one uh, that I've uh, one of the nicest I've had was Salkin Jim. Oh, right, yeah. Oh, Wow. That is, that's beautiful. Salk and gin. They do bath mm. gin. And they make it in a bath, of course. Of course. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to trying bath gin in the bath. <laughs> Salk and gin. How lovely. That's in there, in the time capsule. It's going to be a, a gorgeous thing to open up and discover. That's the whole kit. 
It's got to be there, and obviously a freezer, decent amount of ice in it. Yeah, that's it. Being one of those canisters, won't it? Oh yeah, of course. Whoever opens that, let's see a lucky day, isn't it? Yeah, somebody in the future digs it up. What the hell is it? Jesus Christ, this is good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, okay, that's your second item. So let's move on to number three. Okay, it's ad break time now. Hurrah! Do stay with us, and we'll be back with you very soon. Cheers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to My Time Capsule. I'm my guest, Steve Brown. Let's find out what else he wants to put in his time capsule. Ah, now, I'm going to demonstrate here. I won't say, you still can't see it, but... uh... Oh. That's nice. It's a kalimba, which is uh, an African uh, thumb piano. There is a, sh- a showroom and a hire company not far from here called Bell Percussion, and I I, I wanted something uh, for something that I was I was recording with Lauren Vula, in fact. And I said we should get. A, I said I should have a, a whip on mm. this track, you know, this, which is just basically two lumps of wood, and you go <laughs> two bits of wood and a hinge, and they charged me seventy quid for it or something. <laughs> and anyway, we were there and. Um, I got a, a washboard, that's kind of skiffle noise, you know, the skiffle percussion thing. Mm. And I had a phase, like, whenever I was away and I found a little music shop, I'd buy something kind of gimmicky. And uh, you, you never know when something's going to come in useful. And I've used this a couple of times on a sort of soundtracky kind of thing. And, like, when something mysterious is happening, you know, and you go... Nice. (laughs) (laughs) It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. Now, Steve, you mentioned I was doing this with Laura and Rula in the most casual manner. (laughs) You, to a large extent, sort of 
I mean, I don't know if it's true to say you discovered her, but... Uh... Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, I was her first port of call, shall we say. So, yes, I did. I mean, uh, and before her rumour that I had a big selling record with. Um, yeah. Sounds terrible, you know, when you say it somehow, you're, you're blowing your own horn. You know, I, I met rumour completely by chance and she had been struggling around for years and I said oh hey look you know I've got a recording studio and occasionally I gave time to people you know like a a day or something because it seemed like a fun thing to do and I had I had the time and uh, she came in and that became a a long process and a relationship which we you know recorded an album and I financed it and then I got an email from Laura who was still um uh, you know, still had a day job like everybody does. Mm. She was a receptionist at the Birmingham Symphony Hall. Oh. But she'd done a lot of things musically before and, you know, she knew her stuff and she just started making these tiny little short demos of like a minute and 15. That's all I had. She sent me two songs as demos and they were literally about one minute 20. And she'd mm. recorded them on GarageBand. And I listened to it and, that, you know, lots of people were sending me things at the time and I'd always try and listen. And I heard this one morning. I thought, oh, my good God, what's this? And it made me sit up in a way that I didn't usually. And I immediately emailed her. Like within three minutes of hearing it, I sent her an email. So, yeah, really in her beginning days, she called me Mr. Brown, you know. Can you imagine? <laughs> Nobody calls you that. No. Oi, mush. <laughs> so uh, from that, I called my manager... That day, I said, you, do you have management? Who did these, you know, <laughs> who made these uh, recordings? So uh, I called him up. He was in L.A. And he said, yeah, I'm going to listen. Oh, you are keen, aren't you? And I said, yeah, yeah, I am. I said, I'll tell you how keen I am. Even if you don't want to get involved in it, I said, I'm going to. And he Ooh. went, right, okay, leave it with me for 10 minutes. And he called me back in 10 minutes and said, hold everything Get her number. I'm going to call her from here. Tell her I'll call her at 10 o'clock her time. And Fabulous. And that was it. And she came in here and we sort of met and saw that we got on. And he said, look, as long as you're not, you know, a lunatic, um, you know, if you want to work with us, we'll work with you and uh, get your record deal. Brilliant. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a fantastic thing, isn't it? But then, you know, in a way you have the right to. I mean, you've had hit musicals in the West End. If you look at the list of people who've actually managed to have a hit in the West End, Mm. it's a very small list. Mm. Lots of people have tried. Mm. Hardly anybody succeeded. Well, you know, there's a bit in... Do you remember that film Terms of Endearment with Shirley MacLaine and Jack Nicholson? Mm. And his character is, uh, is a former astronaut. He's been up and circled the Earth in a spaceship. Mm. And there's a bit in it when he says to Shirley MacLaine, do you know how many people have been up in space and gone around the world? She says, no. And he says, 83. And I'm one of them. (laughs) He goes, I don't think, how many people have a show on in town, let alone two? To have two musicals in the West End uh, may not have made Lloyd Webber's money, but at least I've still got my looks. (laughs) (laughs) and i'm one of them just that thing of being on that list Mm. is fairly impressive i'm absolutely the same when i mean all right admittedly me having a number one hit is not the greatest thing in the world because of what it was but 
Well, almost certainly there are fewer than a thousand people who've had a number one hit, and I'm one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's incredible, mm. isn't it? Yeah. It's really weird when I think about it in those terms. So you've done, I mean, I think that sort of thing. So the, the West End, but that's the West End, you know, and that sort of was something that came well into your career. I mean, you'd already been musical director of Spitting Image, Glenn Ponder. If you say the name Glenn Ponder to most people, they know who we're talking about. Mm. You say I'm not a celebrity, but actually if, if you ever used that name, you would be. Well, you know, David Williams said to me once, uh, oh, you'll forever be a footnote in the history of comedy. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, and if it hadn't been for Matt Lucas, so would you. <laughs> yep, that's the clip I'm going to put out. <laughs> I'm sure he meant it in a nice way. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. I mean, I was never keen to be a performer, but I was keen to work. And it strikes me that if you want to work a lot, it's best that you can do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't mind performing. I'm happy to do it to varying degrees of effectiveness. You know, I've, I've had my moments. Um, but on that, you know, the funny thing was when, uh, you know, Coogan had spoken about it a lot. You know, I do this character and, you know, I'm going to have this guy as a band leader. And, we, oh, yeah, yeah, great. And um, so we did a pilot there was uh, an unreleased uh, pilot, or maybe it's a, a, an extra somewhere. Mm. And it was just me and two musicians. So, uh, but it was Glenn Ponder, and he came over and we did the bit of yak and all that kind of thing. And after that, went had a meeting, another meeting with Armando Iannucci, who was mm. doing it. And he said, Look, it's, uh, it's great. He said, We want you to do the music and everything. It's all, you know, it's all great. But, um, you know, it's supposed to be an older guy, you know, and we, had, we looked at you on camera, you just, you're not old enough, you know, you got to, we imagine, I said, well, what are, you, what are you thinking of? And he said, well, you know, sort of 40 and, you know, kind of, I said, I'm 39. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, you know, good for you. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, congratulations on ageing well, he said, but you don't look it. And I said, okay, I, I, I get it. I said, but. I tell you what, if you put a moustache on me, I said, I guarantee it'll put sort of six or seven years on me. Mm. And I went, okay, look, we'll try that. And, uh, and at some uh, rehearsal, they took a moustache on, you know, slightly salt and pepper. And they went, yeah, yeah, you look much older. Yeah. So that's it. Don't have a moustache. I don't know why anybody would have a moustache. I have no idea. <laughs> Some guys get older and they start to look like their own nannies, you know. I think often men look like men with their heads upside down. Yeah. A lot of hair around the bottom and not so much on top. Or like one of those things where you have the iron filings. and <laughs> Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it looks like it's all shaking it all to the bottom. But I'm, I'm so unhirsute. I'm the opposite of Esau. Wasn't it Esau mm. who was an hairy man? Yeah, Esau was an hairy man, yes. I've known women who've envied my legs. <laughs> still, we've still got lovely little fingerboards that we can play little tunes on. Yeah. Oh, my, oh yeah. Wawa. It's uh, actually called a Wawa mm. Kalimba. Anyway. Well, I'm very delighted to see that as well. I'm, I'm delighted, I'm not surprised, but all the people I know who make music tend not to let a computer do something like that. Do you know what? Hey, I'll just, this is just by the by. Of, uh... There was a time when I had a number of TV shows on that was sort of long running, and it's very common for people to call you up sort of around end of November and say, we're doing our Christmas show. 
can you do a sort of Christmas version of the theme music? And I go, oh, so all you do is you play the theme music and then you go... <laughs> over the top of it. That makes anything Christmassy. And uh, for years I'd used uh, little samples. I went to a shop and I thought, really, I, I think this can pay for itself, you know, if I, yeah. I get some real... You're never really going to make that sound. No, it's not going to be the same. No, you've got to, got to have these things. I do like my toys. Yeah, I can see all the guitars, everything (laughs) strung around your studio. How lovely! What a nice life. Okay, Steve, we're (laughs) going to put that little beautiful instrument into the time capsule. So we've got two left. We've got one more that you want to keep and you cherish, Mm. and uh, one that you want to get rid of. Yeah, I've happened to have it here. And that is a a framed letter from the maestro Stephen Sondheim. Wow. Who saw Spend, Spend, Spend at the Piccadilly. Somebody called me up and said, you know, Stephen Sondheim was in and um, absolutely loved it. Uh, I went, oh, oh my God, I wish I'd known. Mm. But I think I would have been too terrified to... uh, um, uh, You know, I never understand. It's a bit like... um, when people say they don't like the Beatles, I don't understand that. I always assume it's a pose. Uh, <laughs> that they're just saying it for effect. And um, it, when people don't like Sondheim, I, I'm always uh, you know, less baffled, but I, I find it slightly baffling. But when I t- first came across him, it was uh, quite epiphanal. Yeah. It made me think about stuff. <laughs> You know, in terms of writing and the possibilities of a of a, a popular song form. I mean, he goes out further with that. I mean, he's really quite avant garde in a way, mm. and he's not just trying to create pretty tunes and funny lyrics. He's he's well, he's ninety now, so uh, I, I you know I think we've probably seen the best of him. But uh, the stuff that he's done, absolutely. Uh, uh, extraordinary, and so to get a complimentary uh, doesn't even uh, cover it, and only modesty forbids me from reading it out. But also because I, so to, to get that, we got really good reviews, uh, and you kind of think, well, that's good, that's good. And then I got this letter from him, and it's worth you could take all the reviews, hmm. you know, to have him praise uh, and actually praise the lyrics, which was a a fantastic uh, thing, and mm. and how the the music and the lyrics combined, which is you know it, it's the difficult knack to acquire. Mm. That was a real moment. But uh, I saw side by side by Sondheim, and I thought, wow, these uh, these are like songs, but there's something more. <laughs> now, if I was going to describe your music, Steve, that's exactly what how I would describe it. Oh. I've always felt that you write incredibly accessible music. You almost feel as if you know it when you hear it. And that's a fantastic trick, if you can do it. Mm. Because these are original tunes. You've never heard it before, but you think you have. <laughs> and then you always have in your songs something that you don't expect. Mm. It will have an extra rhyme, it will have an extra beat, something there that changes it up. And it's those moments that make you sit up 
And I've always thought that that was the great skill that you have in writing all the songs you've ever written. Now, I mean, I'm no expert, but I, you know, I sang on the demo for Spend, 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 mm, yeah. you may remember. Yeah, yeah. And then I did It's a Wonderful Life with you. Mm. And then I've just done the musical about Tony Blair. Brilliant. Mm. And there's another thing that you do, which is that you use the lyrics quite often in a percussive way that you allow the words to be the beat. Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's, uh, there are so many things to kind of consider, I think, when you're, it's very kind of you to say all that. It, it, it's uh, uh, so many things to consider when you're, uh, when you're writing. And, and I do go for precision. I mean, both in terms of the scanning, I don't like to cheat an extra. It's not like pop music, that's different, you know. I think Bob Dylan is fantastic, but he cheats things. But that's consistent with the idiom of folk, which is his starting point. And not mm. all the rhymes are perfect. They're, you know, they're semi-rhymes and where you'd have uh, bright and like, for example, say it's the vowels, you know. But I don't think there's any place for that in uh, musical theatre. Precision in that is so much more rewarding and it makes the things cut a lot more sharply and... You've got to work on the assumption that people aren't necessarily going to hear these again. They've got to work at the point of delivery. And that's both true of music and the lyrics. So the lyrics have to really be singable above all else. And uh, those are the choices. Just certain things don't sing, you know. And it's uh, uh, the same... uh, When it comes to writing fiction, you think, what all you need is a paper and some pen. (laughs) <laughs> rather than it is a skill that you can acquire over years. Everybody's first song was terrible. Everybody's first song, apart from Rod Argent, who wrote She's Not... That, that was, well, actually, that was his second song, to be fair. I believe his first one was awful. Then he wrote She's Not There. Second song, Never Look Back. But generally, it's a craft as, as well as an inspired, uh, you know, as, as well as, uh, you know, hopefully some artistry. yeah. And like Sondheim particularly, he has the ability to write something that would make you weep on first hearing. Mm. As the words come out of the song, mm. you can't stop yourself. It makes you cry. Yeah. And at the same time, he can make you laugh. Yeah. I mean, Officer Krupke. Yeah. Most extraordinary sequence of lyrics. And you have the same thing. To write a joke in lyrics is really difficult because the delivery of the line has to be in the music. Otherwise, the music will bugger up the joke. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All the great writers are capable of being funny. That doesn't mean that you read Nabokov and you're splitting your sides all the way through, but humour and a comedic sense is something that virtually everybody has. Not everybody's as funny as everybody else, but everybody will make a little joke or a giggle or something at some time. So if you're going to reflect real life, you have to be able to produce those moments at will. And mm. so, to me, you know, the comedy tragedy thing is two sides of the same coin is very valid. And um, it was useful that I, I fell into the world of funny people and had to try and figure that out. Mm. <laughs> and Well, quite quickly, I think. <laughs> I don't think you had any problem at all. Now, there's another side to Sondheim, which I think is, uh, I can see the parallels between the two of you. And you know, I, this is not blowing smoke up your ass. I, I genuinely believe this, Steve, that you write sometimes incredibly complicated lyrics. So when you're rehearsing it, 
as a performer, you're very aware that you want to get all that across, but in fact, you can't overemphasize it. So in other words, what you're going to do is just do it well, just sing it well, and it will come across because you've worked out how to make it clear. But at the same time, you also have the skill of making something very simple, very beautiful. And I'm thinking, for example, the end of the musical we did together, It's a Wonderful Life. Mm. I remember listening to Sondheim talking about writing lyrics, and he said, I don't deliberately write complicated things. No. Maybe one of the greatest lyrics I ever wrote was just writing the word Maria 15 times in a row. Yeah. No, oh, incredible. Mm. Well, um, thank you <laughs> for all that. Yeah, the, the one of the warm-ups uh, the other day uh, I said to Harry... Uh, I said, I remember being in one of these warm-ups and the, the guy I was working with, he said, uh, they already sound fantastic. And people were just going, oh, blown, oh, 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 And I kind of think that, you know, when I get on the piano, I'm always sort of knocked out by it in a way, you know, and you just play a couple of notes and you think, oh, this sounds great. <laughs> just because hmm. it's music. It just sounds yeah. great. All you've got to do is sort of try and herd it into some kind of shape. And I think the beauty of the music almost kind of does it for you, mm. you know, and it's just uh, it's just kind of holding onto the reins of it. But, yes, you're right, the simplicity, it's, um, what was it? Oh, oh no, the, the song that you've... Um... But that does that. And I said to uh, Ollie, the musical director, I said, that's like Chopin or something. That's. Mm. Or Eric Sarty. That's the same chords as Eric Sarty. The, yeah, the yeah. famous one, yeah. you know. Beautiful. So I kind of think, well, that's just two chords. Just let the beauty of the music do the work for you. You know, it's there. Mm. It's all there. Mm. Just got to shape it. Well, you do it extremely well. So there we are. But it doesn't surprise me at all that you have a letter from Stephen Sondheim saying how <laughs> brilliant your musical was. But what a fantastic thing to have. Because he's the, he's the best and he actually took the time to... He sent me a... a, a I got a, a birthday card, my 60th from him. Wow. So, Happy birthday, Steve. Keep doing it till you get it right. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to one thing that's happened to you in your life that you wish you could just forget. You know that thing when people say, uh, what's the first single you bought? And uh, people like to go, uh, the Beatles, Please Please Me, or it's Elvis, Suspicious Mind, or, you know, one of the earlier ones, Starman, you know. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> you come to me and what's the first single you bought? It was... Little White Ball by Tommy Steele. <laughs> and I wish I could get rid of the truth of that. I've still got it somewhere, I think. They, they, you know, locked up in a, you know, an attic somewhere. Yeah, Little White Ball by Tommy Steele. You see, the problem is, I love that song. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like it, but it's not... <laughs> I know, I still sing it. You're my little ball. you got to be a great little ball. The best in Spain. <laughs> no one told him that they kill the bulls. Yeah. Even if he manages to get a good one in with the matador, you still had it so far from a fair contest. <laughs> it's true. It'd be like if they came to 
Tyson Fury, after he'd beaten Wilder, and said, well done, you've won. And then 20 blokes jumped out and kicked the shit out of him. <laughs> you won, but you're going to get beaten up anyway. That's true. Mm. Why can't you leave me alone in the field to sire some more little balls? Mm. <laughs> some other little white balls. Do you know that's by that song? Shall I tell you? Lionel Bart. The great Lionel Bart. Now, there's a thing. He's an astonishing man, wasn't mm. he? Absolutely astonishing. When you look at the list of things that he wrote, mm. I did a tryout for a musical, strangely enough, Steve, about Lionel Bart and learned the most extraordinary things about him directly from his secretary, who was with him for many, many years. The story of him getting a phone call from Cubby Broccoli and him saying, we want you to write the next Bond theme. And he said, well, what's the film? And they said, it's called From Russia With Love. And apparently, Lionel Bart went, um, what sort of from Russia with love? OK, right. Um, uh, yeah, I fly to you from Russia with love. I've... And he sang the song straight out of his head down the phone to Cubby Broccoli. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, he could barely play the piano. I mean, just, just terrible on the piano. Like Irving Berlin, see? These are the people I relate to more. <laughs> <laughs> He basically wrote almost every hit of the 60s, the early 60s, didn't he? And so the money was pouring in. And he had parties that went on for months. <laughs> and at the door of these parties, he used to have bowls of money. And when the bowl was empty, he would fill it up again. He famously took an entire room full of people at a party at his flat. Somebody was talking about the new Mini that had just been made. And he said, yeah, they're lovely, them, aren't they? They're new. Let's go and get some. So he took everybody out, he bought everybody a mini. I think twice about buying everybody a mini roll. <laughs> Little ball. That's fantastic. Mm. But then I'm afraid that I can top you because my first single is even worse. I bought Two Little Boys by Rolf Harris. Oh. Mm -hmm. Ooh, you see, that's... You're forever besmirched, aren't you? Yeah, forever. You got your credibility back with the next song, which is Gary Glitter. <laughs> we supported Gary Glitter several times as the heebie-jeebies. Did you? Jesus Christ. Mm, yeah, well, they're the exact right words, yeah. Oh, no. We just did our stuff and then went to the pub and kept away. Fair enough. Uh, how did you go down? Oh, we went down a storm, yeah. yeah. They really liked us. We only did sort of like 15... 20 minutes, just as a warm-up. And then somebody would start playing the drum. I mean, the start of the Gary Glitter set was somebody basically going... for a good 10 minutes while the audience all clapped along. And then eventually a guitar would go... Now, I'm going to stop there because I will not let any sort of money go to Gary Glitter no. from this podcast. I remember my then agent uh, calling up and said, uh, there might be a support gig for you. You know, I was sort of still, you know, doing funny songs with a guitar at the mic, you know. And mm. Said, uh, it's Hammersmith uh, supporting uh, then Jericho. I said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> <laughs> I wish you'd taken it. That would be a hell of an anecdote. Harry Enfield uh, and the, you know, the guy I used to do a double act with, they supported some band in his very early days. And uh, mm. uh, he was reduced to trying to split the audience up, pitting one side against the other. 
The sea who could tell him a fuck off loudest. <laughs> it's bold. There we are. All right, we're going to put Tommy Steele. I can't say it. We're going to put Tommy Steele singing Little White Bull yeah. in there. And then I'm afraid Lionel Bart gets no more royalties because that song's gone. <laughs> Steve, when I said to you, do you want to come on my podcast? You said, nobody be interested in me. I've got nothing to talk about. <laughs> it's been fantastic. Thank you, mate. Pleasure, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Steve Brown. Right, before I go, here are the parish notices. Uh, Mrs Johnson at the hardware store has asked that everyone subscribes to this show. And if you liked it, please do rate it and maybe even write a short review. The best review will be published in next month's newsletter. She also politely requests that we all leave her shop frontage clear between 10 and 11 on Mondays, as that's when she gets her weekly delivery. Thanks. Now, Simon, from our local pub, The Hope and Anchor, has organised a group to follow My Time Capsule on social media. So if you'd like to join in, then please do add your name to the list on the notice board by the lounge bar door. Our choir master, Ms Harper, she doesn't like the term choir mistress, as you know, so please respect her wishes on that. Thank you. Anyway, she will be downloading the theme tune to my time capsule from Spotify, which is an internet thing. And she says that everyone is free to join her if they wish. You just search my time capsule theme tune or pass the peas music. (laughs) Yes, I know it's an odd name, isn't it? But uh, apparently they composed it. Right, the minutes and this podcast are a cast-off production and My Time Capsule is produced by John Fenton Stevens. I'm sure he's very, very busy doing that, which is probably why we haven't seen him in church recently. So, if there are no more points of order, good. Right, see you all in the Hope and Anchor in five minutes. My round, I believe. (laughs) Yeah, please do restack the chairs before you leave. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 